Welcome to Season 2 of the Just for a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. We love hearing and sharing stories about social innovation happening both locally and outside our borders in the Global South. In Season 2, we put the spotlight on the changemakers behind some incredibly innovative approaches and solutions who are creating systemic change. And we're also curious to find out what keeps them going. Join us as we discover how these changemakers are changing the way we're changing the world. Welcome to Season 2 of the Just for a Change podcast with me, your host, Kinsi Khatebe. Last August in Season 1, we did an episode on how women are changing the way we're changing the world. And in commemoration of Women's Month this month, we're continuing with this thread. The idea of a single life with multiple narratives running in parallel is an intriguing one. It throws us off and perhaps even causes some discomfort when we grapple with the notion that sometimes there is no single, linear, and uncomplicated narrative. In this month's episode, we're exploring the multidimensional lives of women who work at the front lines of advocating for women's rights. We're particularly interested in the narratives that highlight how a woman locked up in prison for a certain crime is also a mother of a hungry toddler, a daughter of a woman who is HIV positive, and maybe even a talented sportswoman whose dreams were crushed as a young girl when she was raped and social pressures and shame forced her to drop out of school. Empathy is described as the ability of a narrative to put us in another place or time, or even allow us to place ourselves in another person's shoes and to see the world through their eyes. Daniel H. Pink, in his book, A Whole New Mind, defines empathy as the ability to imagine yourself in someone else's position and to intuit what that person is feeling. Stories are important. There's no denying that. And if you've been following this podcast, you will know that we love stories. They are powerful and they have the potential to change our thinking, perceptions, and perhaps even our actions. But it is empathy that gives story their power in advocacy. In his book, Pink describes how empathy allows one to see the other side of an argument, one of advocacy communication's main purposes. It's easier than we think to stigmatize. How do we decide who deserves justice and who deserves empathy? In this episode of Just For A Change, we'll be talking to various changemakers on the topic of empathic advocacy, hearing about their initiatives, but also why it is important to advocate for those whose society often thinks deserves it least. Ishtar Akani has been working as a feminist, activist, and troublemaker in the field of social justice advocacy for over 15 years. She currently collaborates with a range of social justice organizations, movements, and networks globally, providing support to strengthen their approaches to strategic human rights advocacy. We wanted to hear from Ishtar about her work in advocacy, as well as her thoughts on empathic advocacy specifically. Here's what she had to say. My easiest example is I often ask people, what made you care? Like, what made you care about human rights or whatever issue you're working on? So the rights of sex workers, what made you care? Uh, What made you care in, I don't know, democracy or advocating for housing rights or environmental rights? And I've asked these questions to thousands of activists all around the world. And all of them tell really deep, meaningful, visceral, very personal stories of something that happened to themselves, a family member, a friend, an experience that they had that moved them to care and moved them to care enough to do something about it. Um, And in some cases, dedicate their lives towards a particular cause. And so when developing any kind of advocacy intervention, my question is, 
if that tactic if we're trying out a tactic and that didn't move us to care what makes us think it's going to move someone else so if we weren't moved by i don't know a tweet or signing a petition or watching a panel um what makes it makes us think that that will move someone else i think building narratives is a huge part of what we do as people who advocate for particular issues um in my case it's advocating for the rights of sex workers what's really important around the narratives of sex worker rights is that so often it's it's written or told by someone else and 99% of the time that someone else is i don't know a hollywood director or uh, a journalist or someone who has never actually lived a life in the sex industry or knows anything about what it means to be a sex worker so what's really important is that we make sure that the narratives that are put out in the world are actually narratives led and um and told by those who are most affected um I think this is a really important part of advocacy really really good storytelling because good storytelling will be the difference between someone actually listening to you or not. Today we're excited to hear from the Sex Workers Education and Advocacy Task Force also known as SWET as well as Rape Crisis as we dive into the conversation of empathic advocacy. We're particularly interested in these stories about women because conversations about sexual assault and sex work are often framed as taboo, uncomfortable, and sometimes as challenging to our social norms, values, and beliefs. The idea of empathy and systems thinking relates to a deep emotional understanding of key actors in a system which leads to important systems level insights. In other words, empathy helps us resist judgment, question assumption, understand and appreciate the motivations that ultimately create system shifts. Stigma is a powerful social force that often robs society of our ability to be nuanced in our understanding of a social phenomenon. For a rape victim, it could be subtle implications from friends and family that place the blame on the victim. Some questions amidst their discomfort of the conversation could be for example, what time of day was it? What was she wearing? Was she alone? Was she drunk? The stigma of being raped can often prevent women from reporting sexual assault. For a sex worker on the other hand, stigma puts sex workers at risk since criminal and licensing laws against sex work often lead to violence. According to an article in the Conversation, mere knowledge of someone's sex work can be used against them by abusive partners as blackmail or suggesting they are unfit parents in custody cases. Not only that, but stigma is also socially isolating. It leaves sex workers with few options to turn to for support and is a critical barrier to accessing healthcare, human rights and justice. As a feminist organization, Rape Crisis works towards achieving women's rights by offering counseling, education and training, advocacy and community mobilization. Where Sweat advocates for and delivers services to South African sex workers. The organization's vision is to see a South Africa where people who choose to sell sex are able to enjoy freedom, rights and human dignity. Both of these organizations deal with immense stigmas about their work and often make strong cases for empathic advocacy. However, we also know that both of these organizations have also faced various kinds of backlash for their social and political views. As Samantha Powers said, all advocacy is at its core an exercise in empathy. And on that note, I'd like to welcome our guest for today, 
Zainat Hendricks, Communications Coordinator at Rape Crisis, and Duduzile Jameni, the Advocacy Manager at SWEAT. Just a note to our listeners that this podcast is recorded remotely and our guests are mostly at home, so you may hear a child or a dog in the background. Okay, Zina, Sister Du, thank you again for joining us for this podcast episode. I wanted to start at the top, and it was a conversation that we were having as the podcast team. Rape Crisis, Sweat, and Mothers to Mothers, it's another organization that we're interviewing as part of this episode. They're sister organizations, or you guys have done work together in the past. I'm, I'm not sure. Zinat? Uh, yes. So Rape Crisis, Cape Town Trust, and I think Sweat, uh, we did some workshops uh, maybe in 2019 with some of the staff and, and their beneficiaries yeah, on sexual and reproductive health rights um, for sex workers. Um, so, yeah, we, we have quite a quite close relationship with them. Oh, amazing. I love to see that collaboration happening between organizations that are doing really similar work. Because I think when we were even thinking about this podcast and this episode and thinking about these two organizations and then finding out that you guys have actually collaborated on on different projects. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so Sister, if somebody didn't know anything about SWEAT and you had to describe it to them, how would you explain the work that you do there? Uh, Sex Worker Education and Advocacy Task Force is an organization that's fighting for the right of sex workers, but also uh, fighting for the full decriminalization of sex work in South Africa. So we advocating for a full decriminalization of South Africa because of uh, sex workers. They've been violated many, 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 many times and multiply and because of the criminalization that affects sex workers. So the organization is um, helping sex workers and support sex workers' rights and advocating, but uh, empowering sex workers and capacitate sex workers to stand and speak by themselves. That sounds like like a tall order, but I think it's, it's a little bit similar to, to what you were doing, Zina, at, at, at Rape Crisis, because I remember the first time I met you and the passion that, that you spoke about in terms of the work that you do. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you do at Rape Crisis, your journey there, and, and what that has been like? It's been a very enlightening moment um, working for an organization like Rape Crisis. Um, it's been, you know, something that I've had to do a number of reflections on. Am I doing the right thing? Am I in the right space? Am I, right, am I the right person to do this work? Um, just because our environments, and I'm, I'm sure that Sis Dudu can agree, the environment that we work in is so, um, you know, it's intense, uh, it's rigorous, it's constantly changing, it's traumatic, um, but it's also very challenging and there's a lot of room for um, creativity and, you know, for improvement all the time. And, of course, that improvement always starts with you, with the individual. Um, so for a long time, at least two years of my role, I've been, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what does sexual violence mean? You know, and how do I understand it? How do I relate to it? Um, and, and what can I, as a communications, you know, person do uh, to better the strategy so that community and at large South Africa can benefit from the work of rape crisis um, and so that more people have access to services? Um, so with saying all of that, it, it had actually led me to, you know, where I'm at the moment in, in figuring all of that out and being, you know, having an opportunity to, to study further and to apply different methods um, to enhance the work of the organization. And I suppose um, it's, it's transferable as well. 
it may not only sit, you know, in this organization, it may be something that I can transfer into a different space. Um, so the social justice um, sector is a very, um, it's a unique space um, and it tests you quite a bit. Um, it, it really challenges you to the point where you, you have to step back and, and preserve your energy um, for the future of this work because it's, it's going to take a long time um, to see change and to do change. Sure, Zina, I think when you're speaking, you're making me think about a conversation that we often have about having resilience as, as people who are activists and who are in the advocacy space. And, and I think that's such, so phenomenal and so critical to, to the work that you do. And I think for me, what I love about what you were just saying is around how you utilize creativity in your advocacy strategies. And Sister Do, I want to bring you back into the conversation here because in 2019, you worked on a campaign with Sweat where you guys actually put together a sex worker-led party during the 2019 general elections as a strategy to highlight the right of sex workers and to make the case for the decriminalization of sex work in South Africa. What motivated Sweat to create that campaign and how did it allow you guys to tell your story? Um, that campaign was, um, come up from the advocacy as a tool to show how much, uh, that sex workers are capable to do stuff and uh, capable to what they want and how to advocate for, for themselves, for, um, for, for, for their rights and advocates for full decriminalization. And that campaign was the way that it worked for us. It worked the way that people, they can learn and understand and accept sex workers the way they are. And also understanding that what is important for sex workers to be treated fairly and, and also protecting their dignity that they can able to do other stuff without being a sex worker even though they can do, but as a adding skills, top of the skills that they have. So the campaign was showing that how much sex workers are powerful and how much that it's needed that to change those laws that able that criminalize sex workers and keep them vulnerable as a, as a key population that it's not been recognized in this country. The, the, the campaign went very well and shows that how much a woman, black woman, it's how much it's having power to do things by themselves, but how much being vulnerable in the space where they cannot capable to do things because of they've been taking away the dignity and the respect of um, respect of their and also their agency from them. Zinat, I want to bring you back into the conversation here, reflecting on what Sisutu was just saying about power and vulnerability and being a woman and what that campaign illustrated for Sweat. Because I think one for me, one of the things that stands out about Rape Crisis approach is the fact that you talk about working from a feminist woman's collective. What does that mean and how does that shape the way that you organize as an organization? Yeah, I think so. So Rape Crisis you know, believes in the, the feminist principles um, as well as the, the principles of empowerment, which is which is really the journey that the survivor goes on when he or she attends our counselling service um, or our counselling sessions. And when I think about, you know, the collective voice or collective ownership and, and how we craft campaigns or how we craft messages, um, for me, that really links strongly to community. Um, it, it is about the conversations that we're having, not just with government, but also the conversations that we're having with community members. Um, and that's why we, we employ, you know, women from the community and they attend our training courses 
And through that, they then become, you know, the community educators in that community. So they are basically, you know, seeing the social ills in front of them, but also, you know, journeying with their communities and trying to help and trying to educate and doing the workshops, doing the training with that specific community too. So there's a close connection, you know, between the level of understanding and the context. And I think context is so important when it comes to, um, you know, any form of collectivity and understanding what that can mean for society as a whole. Um, so that, that feminist lens really, it lends itself not only to just, you know, the rights of women, but also humanity as a whole. Um, our service, I think, looks from the outside like we only see women, um, but we actually also see members of the LGBTI community as well as men. And it is something that we are working on as well, you know, to make it more sort of known that we also see uh, male survivors of rape. Um, and so, yeah, the, the feminist approach um, has caused a lot of um, contention within the organization, you know, in understanding what is feminism, uh, especially in, 20, in 2021, you know, who relates to feminism even in the organization, at, you know, just looking inward and, and understanding it from that perspective, you know. Um, and we've had a number of conversations about that because it does drive strategy and it does drive the vision of the organization and maybe even it changes the vision of the organization and it changes people. Um, so we've, we've been on quite a journey with, um, you know, developing feminist principles that speak to rape crisis, that speak to firstly the people who work in rape crisis um, and not the donors and the funders who, you know, who often, you know, lead conversations, but how can we as an organization be the ones to lead that first. And, and that in itself is, uh, you know, inclusive, um, which is also a principle of feminism. So Zina, I really appreciate what you're saying about the complexity of the context that you guys work in as an organization. But I think what I also appreciate is you painting this picture for us that really highlights that even internally within rape crisis, you have almost like a pushback. I think that's what you were saying around understanding what is, you know, feminism. How do you organize and work with feminist principles? And I think for us, what we also wanted to bring into this episode was this idea of empathic advocacy. And, and I see almost the duality between the feminist organizing principles that you're speaking about and this idea of empathic advocacy, which is being able to walk in somebody else's shoes or being able to understand the complexity of their stories. And I'm curious about how within Rape Crisis, you've been able to work with really different individuals to be able to tell their stories in order to highlight the issues that you want to highlight. What has that been like? And maybe if you could give us some examples of the campaigns that you've organized, that try to get at those aspects, that try to get at this an idea that there is no one way of understanding rape or how rape comes about in our society. And that having that feminist perspective is actually quite powerful and useful, but also at the same time, acknowledging that maybe people might not necessarily understand that. How do you bring people on that journey with you? Absolutely. Um, yeah, very important to mention, I think I mentioned it earlier, is about community. Um, and I think that what I've realized in my space um, was that I was not the one that was going to bring, you know, the answers. I was not the one who was going to create the best strategy and, you know, the most creative one even. Um, and so again, like I, I will say this, that looking inward and really looking at the people who do the work um, on the ground, who we, who we can call activists, um, you know, social activists, they are the ones who hold the knowledge. They're also the ones who hold the context. 
and they've got the on the ground experience. And I think often in, in our space and even in the nonprofit space, we kind of overlook that. Um, you know, we don't acknowledge the fact that these people who do the work on the ground, they, you know, they, they hold so much knowledge and expertise um, and, and where's the loop to bring that back into the organization. And so what we've done over the last two years is we've included all of that in our, you know, in, in, co- in co-creation sessions, for instance, for, just to use an example. Um, we were given some funding to, to host these workshops on sexual and reproductive health rights. And already that term is such a loaded term. And when you take that to a community, it's just like, you know, what are we talking about here? You know, we're talking about abortion. We're talking about getting, you know, getting tested at a clinic and having access to these services, which um, people don't know that they have. Um, you know, sometimes people don't even know that they can go to the police station to report rape and that the police station is, resp- well, the investigating officer is responsible to then take you to a Tutuzela care center, which is the, the clinic that sees you after your rape. Um, and so things like that needed, you know, collective input. And we sat together for an entire year and we developed um, a, a campaign that was just simply called Know Your Rights. And we developed a series of posters and we worked with uh, a very, you know, well-known artist called Russell Abrams. Um, he's just done some amazing painting in Joburg. Um, and we, we sat with him and we actually asked him to, to sketch real-life personas um, of a community member in Athlone and a community member in Kaidicha because those were, were the communities that we were working in at the time. Um, and we created these eight personas, you know, um, very typical to the community, not stereotypical, but very typical to each of those community and facing real-life challenges. Um, and you can check it out on our Instagram and our Facebook and what it looks like. And it became a very real uh, poster, um, both for digital and, uh, you know, offline. We had them printed as well. Um, and each poster had a story, you know, about the experience of a rape survivor, the experience of a 17-year-old being raped by a boyfriend, um, and falling pregnant and not knowing where to go. Um, and so bringing that kind of activation, uh, you know, into the digital space or into digital communications is a difficult thing because that same audience doesn't love there. And so it's really like, where are you bringing the message home? And within that, obviously, there was so much experiential learning going on for the organization as well as for myself, um, because now, you know, the team doing the work can see, oh, this is what happens and this is how we can actually use our voice in campaign. This is how we can help to co-create. Um, and it helped me to understand how much work I needed to do in order to, you know, harvest stories from people and from communities and then create campaigns through that, you know, and not just sitting back and going like, I think that's a cool campaign. Let's run with that and let's come up with a hashtag. Um, so obviously a very admin driven and much more rigorous way to work, but so much more valuable and rewarding at the end of the day. An amazing story to tell. Um, you know, to your audiences, to your beneficiaries, and, and just for staff to share amongst themselves that this is what we have, we have achieved. And it's all based on real things. You know, it hasn't been fabricated. Um, so when we talk about empathetic or uh, empathetic advocacy or being an activist and walking in someone else's shoes, I think that was the, you know, that was the, the moment that we realized that, okay, this is, this is us practicing empathy. It's the first, you know, it's the first step in the design thinking process. And the design thinking process was what we used to develop that campaign. 
Um, and so the, the empathy phase was a long phase for us. It was about three months where we sat and we, we tried to understand, you know, what is this community going through? What do they have access to? Do they have data? And how can we think about all of those things and tell the story about it? So it was a very interesting experience. Sure. I, I think the power of story and narrative is really what's what's coming through for me in, in both what you and Sister Du are saying. And and I think for me, Sister Du, to bring you in again here around this idea of storytelling and how important it is to be able to tell authentic stories. Um, I remember in 2017 when I first met Sister Du, she was speaking about sex work, being an advocate, being an ad activist and working at Sweat. And I think at the time I hadn't heard of Sweat in its entirety. I knew about the organization, but I didn't really know what you did. And after Sister just spoke, and I think it was to a room full of people, there must have been like 40, 50 people in that room. And she really just, you spoke about your journey. And I remember just being so overwhelmed, but also really, really understanding from really, I don't know, it's from a, another person's perspective and almost that, that that idea of being able to walk in someone's shoes. And from then, I was really captivated by sweat and the work that you do. And I, and I guess for me, it links to a campaign that you worked on as well, Sister Du. You collaborated with the International AIDS Society. And in the campaign, you speak about how I'm not a victim. I'm a sex worker, activist, and human rights defender. And I wanted to ask you about... Why is it so important to highlight all these different roles that you occupy and play in society? Why is it so important to tell more than a one-sided story about who you are and your journey in the work that you do? It's because um, I like to tell people must hear from the horse's mouth. I believe that rather people come to me and ask a sex worker. Because in, within the community, we experience stigma and discrimination. So I want to prove people wrong the way they think and the way they assume things. The stigma and discrimination that we experience from the community, from our neighbors, where they by even going to our children behind the backs and telling our children how we bad we are because of their beliefs and then the, the way that they treat us within the community, taking away the dignity. I was uh, really make sure that how much I protect my dignity from my community and how I respect the, the, the community. So I want to prove them wrong that being a sex worker, it doesn't mean that they must call me names. Being a, a sex worker doesn't mean that I'm a bad person, I'm a bad mom. So I have to prove them wrong that I'm a good mom and I, I have to, I, I deserve to be respected regardless of the work that I do. So I always make sure it's what I'm doing. That's why also, because people, they think that you are a sex worker, you are a victim. No, it's not. Even though you make choices from the, you choose from the limited choices, I choose to be a sex worker. And I have a confidence, the money that I make there. The things that I make from to support my family, that is mean that I'm a worker. So I have to prove them wrong that I'm not that kind of person that they think. I'm not that bad the way that they think. The last thing that I have to share with you is that, but also touching the society, they must stop like assuming who we are. We know who we are. We really do, but we are not victims. But the, what makes us become victims is the things that they're saying and calling names and discriminate us. Rather, they must come to us and ask, and then we're going to tell. We know where we, we, who we are. That's why I did that video, sharing my story with a power and the energy 
and the confidence to share that I know, yes, I go through a lot, but I know who I am. I know what I want. And I know that really, really, I'm a human rights defender for every each woman in South Africa that need to be supported in terms of social, social, um, social justice. I'm a fighter. I'm not fighting physically, but I can use my voice to raise the issues that other women experience. Zinat, I, I want to, I love where Sister Du ended up off with in terms of fighting for the rights of, of women, because rape crisis has been around since, I think it's 1976. So as an organization, you've been around for quite some time. And I'm interested in how, even though maybe the core crux of the issues that you focus on has remained the same in essence, what has shifted that has also influenced the kinds of advocacy campaigns that you are focused on and the kinds of strategies that you employ when you're thinking about, you know, advocating for women and other individuals that you service as an organization? Well, I think the most important one would be, you know, getting the, the counseling service out there, um, you know, as a source of help. I think most importantly, you know, survivors of sexual violence, um, when they are in that state, it's quite hard to, you know, to be able to internalize certain things around you and to reach out to a helpline, for instance, um, to reach out to a WhatsApp line or to, a, to come to a face-to-face counseling service. And I think during um, the beginning of the pandemic, um, we saw the need, you know, to establish a WhatsApp counseling service um, or rather a support service because so many individuals were sitting in spaces where they, that was the only hope uh, was to reach out via WhatsApp. Um, and so that has steadily grown over the last two years that more and more people, you know, outside of the Western province, um, for instance, have now, that's how they've reached us. And then in terms of, you know, certain changes, I think with regard to seeking help and, and you know, coming to, the road to recovery and, and joining the counseling service, just getting that information out there and seeing how much more people we are seeing every year, you know, from, from year to year, how many more clients we're seeing. Obviously, that's an indication that, you know, um, people are seeking help. This issue is becoming, you know, more, the more awareness around the issue and people are feeling, you know, like they, they can reach out. From an advocacy perspective, uh, we've been working closely with, you know, with the Department of, of Health and the Department of Justice and the Department of Social Development um, in and communities in developing a sexual offences courts um, uh, infrastructure. Um, and the campaign is known as the Rape Survivors Justice Campaign. And basically every year you will see us protesting outside the Kailija Court for the last five years at least um, because that court you know, sees a lot of rape and sexual violence cases. And so the need for it to become a specialized court, um, you know, is obviously evident. And so that campaign, you know, has been going on for the last couple of years. And we are really trying to establish more of these courts in the country so that survivors have, you know, a, a better service when they go and report and when they go to court. And so the, the basic you know, things about the sexual offences court is that it's in its infrastructure, it's different to a normal court. Um, the survivor is separated from the perpetrator. Um, you know, the personnel works in the court, they're all trained um, and would have gone through some form of sensitivity training. 
Um, and, with, and, and obviously the experience for the survivor would be different, so there will be less secondary trauma um, in this case. Um, so this is an ongoing campaign that we're busy with, um, and, and we've now looked at how can we expand on it, and, and what we're doing at the moment is looking at you know other specialized services for survivors, so maybe not just the court service, but also the forensic service that the survivor has to go through. You know, how specialized is that, and how specialized other personnel working in those spaces as well, and how can the rape crisis be a part of that training? Um, and, and the voice in driving these campaigns um, in government, at the roundtables, you know, in parliamentary meetings, et cetera, and even with donors and funders. I think what's so critical about what you're saying is it's about more than just, you know, raising awareness about sexual assault and sexual violence, but also speaking to what happens on the other side of that journey. That for a lot of us as, you know, average people, we actually don't understand what that process looks like, what's involved, the amount of effort and, and I suppose also emotional effort required from, from victims who come forward to report rapes and, and sexual assault. So I, I really appreciate that. And I think that brings me also to, sister, to the work that you do with mothers for the future, because part of the work that you do isn't just about, you know, advocacy and and being an activist, but it's also walking alongside women who have had a similar journey to you. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe some of the challenges that you've experienced in engaging with women who are mothers through the organization Mothers for the Future and what that journey has been like? Uh, There's a lot of challenges because the space Mothers for the Future is creating a safe space for mothers that can share more because become it's not only uh, sex worker issues that they face, but before they become a sex workers, they are mothers. Before they become a sex worker, they are sisters. So for them to share more, but also filling the gaps that we're not going to able to get it. So we were looking into what is another issues that affect sex worker as a mother in the motherhood from the location where they stay in. So that space is very traumatized space because it's where you find the mothers, how they feel and how they, 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 they have a lot more than the HIV, the sickness or the other stuff that the people they look at. We are so different in terms of that. So, we find that there is a lot of mothers, there are more mothers who are affected by even their homes, domestic violence, they, 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 they're getting raped within the location beside the sex work industry. Then we find a lot around the issues that they affect them around their children in terms of uh, children that are affected by HIV. We find that there is the services that they don't reach, such as abortion services, such sexual as a sexual, all the sexual reproductive health. Those are the things that we get in there. And sometimes there is more emotional space where the mothers saying their feelings and how they deal with those feelings and how they need support in solidarity in those things. But there is times where is where they sharing more experiences within what is happening in the sex industry, in the houses, in household. So the space is very, very challenging because sometimes there is things that we cannot able to give them, like such as services, such as if there is a child, uh, uh, issues where we need to refer the mother, but we're trying by all means to find partners to refer those mothers. 
No, I hear you. I hear you, Sister Do. And and I think maybe to, to then bring us almost to a wrap-up, Zina, I think Sister Do's painted quite a vivid picture of what women go through in general, but also specifically sex workers and the challenges that they're faced with. And I'd be interested from your perspective, sort of like on the flip side of that, of acknowledging all these challenges, of acknowledging all the difficulties in trying to tell the stories of women who are living on the margins, whose stories we often don't hear. If we were to utilize empathic advocacy as a tool to understand your work a little bit better, what could we potentially see as change? What, what, what could be a different story that we could imagine that you could tell from your perspective? Often I think that when we, we look at our social media and we look at the news, what are we seeing? We're seeing the negative narrative. We're seeing the stats. We're seeing, you know, how bad things are. And unless you, you're not in it, you won't see that little light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and, and, it, and at what is most times keeping activists going. You know, is the success stories, is the stories of impact, is the stories of change. Um, and I think it's for organizations such as Late Crisis, such as SWIT, um, and many other organizations who do this work to, you know, to reflect on their own stories of change, um, to define their own stories of change and to give the beneficiaries an opportunity to paint that picture as well, you know, to, to listen to them, um, to listen to the stories that they are telling us so that we can respond to that and 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 that should be the narrative um, of the future women are still changing the way we are changing the world our positive outlook story with simlingiwetlanga is up next in this segment we zoom in on an innovative organization that was born at a time of crisis it is an organization that beautifully depicts the complexity in our stories mothers to mothers was founded in 2001 when the number of new HIV infections in South Africa was at its peak and a potent cocktail of stigma, fear and lack of information, as the organization puts it. This meant that most HIV positive pregnant women couldn't access the treatment they desperately needed to stay healthy and prevent their unborn babies from contracting HIV. Dr. Mitch Bessa, a medical doctor who was volunteering at a hospital in Cape Town, had a game-changing idea. What if one could employ former patients who had successfully accessed and adhered to treatment, given birth to an HIV-negative child as mentor mothers, who could then help other women as they walked this same journey? In October this year, Mothers to Mothers will be celebrating 20 years, a fantastic milestone. This organization continues to impact thousands of women's lives through its innovative model. We asked Nozi Samela, a senior communications officer and a former mentor mother, to explain why it's so important for mothers to mothers to employ HIV-positive mothers. From, from my end, I just want to reiterate the importance of employing women living with HIV. Why, one might ask, why this particular group? Well, when Mothers to Mothers was started, um, Nearly 20 years ago now, you know, HIV was at its peak in South Africa um, and stigma and discrimination towards people living with HIV was at its highest. Children born to mothers who are living with HIV had 
a nearly 40% chance of becoming infected with HIV as well. So it made perfect sense for us to employ women who are living with HIV, who fully understand the challenges that their communities face, who fully understand the stigmas that people living with HIV have to go through. And women who have given birth to HIV-free babies to give hope to other women who might be going through that process at that time. And now we're joined by a mentor mother from Mothers to Mothers. Thank you, Velna, for joining us on the Just for a Change podcast today. And to start off our conversation, could you please elaborate on the mother-to-mother mentor-mother model and what exactly is a mentor-mother? In simple terms, the mentor-mother model improves the health of communities while delivering a meaningful employment for women living with HIV. At Mothers to Mothers, we employ women living with HIV as a community health workers called mentor mothers. Mentor mothers works both at health facilities and door-to-door to improve health communities across the 10 African nations. They deliver a life-changing services to women, children, adolescents, and their entire families. Um, that's great to hear, um, Velna. Thank you for um, mentioning to us about the mentor mother model. And I'm curious to know more on what are some stigmas that you've come across um, that women you work with have had to face? If you can share that with us. It's when the woman is tested for HIV and the family reject them. When they are rejected, they don't see the necessity for them to come to the health facility to collect the medicine. So they stop taking the treatment. So it's where we came in and then we do our household visit and then we go with them to their household visits and then we meet their mother while she's still pregnant so we can build a relationship between the families and the client. It's, it's where we stop the stigma because we support them and educate them. If we look at empathic advocacy and applying it to other people, what are some of the complex stories of women you work with? Okay. The women that I'm working with, a lot of them are experiencing rejection from their partners and their families are not, are not being supportive because it's kind of difficult for them to know that they are HIV positive while they are still pregnant because one thing that they will realize, the first thing is that I'm pregnant. What if my baby is HIV positive? So their partners tend to leave them and not support them. So I have one of my clients that is is going through that process, but we supported her and educated her. So she managed to come back to the clinic and the baby is 10 weeks now and she's HIV negative. Velna, if you can please share with us what has it meant for you to be part of the Mothers to Mothers uh, initiative? And you can please feel free to share it in uh, your home language or your preferred first language um, that you'd like to express this in. I mean, I was a program in Mothers to Mothers. You can program in the program. You can program in the program. And then 
abantu bayazi ukuthi HIV positive and ngincedana abantwana bami angincedana abantwana bami ngincedana efamily ami ngincedana community ami nabo ba bakhona ukukhululeka bakhulume nge HIV and then bangabina amahloni ne HIV mina ingqede khulu ngoba ngiyakwazi ukuthi ngihlogomele umndeni wami Thank you Velna and when i hear you say that what my take out is is that it's helped you to be part of this initiative and it's helped you to look after your children it's helped you find work and it's helped you find connections with the community um and also the status when it comes to hiv so thank you so much for sharing uh, with us it's so good to be reminded that each one of us has a story some stories are perhaps more complex than others and these are all stories that need to be told in their entirety if we are to create just and equitable societies empathic advocacy is perhaps a new idea to many of our listeners however we hope that this episode planted even just a small seed around the matter we can all do with a little bit more grace a little bit more understanding and a lot more love and kindness towards each other thank you for tuning in to season 2 of the just for a change podcast powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. If you're curious about what innovation is happening in Africa and the global south and who the movers and shakers are behind these initiatives, then make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes.